0: Let's pray before we get into it. You're going to need a Bible this morning. Uh, we're going to play with some technology, some of which I don't think we ended up testing, but we'll we'll see if it works. Oh, it does! It, it is good. All right, let's pray before we begin this part of our gathering this morning. Lord Jesus, we are here because we are wanting to be your people. We want you. We want to represent you faithfully. We want to live lives following after you and belonging to you. Lord Jesus, as we enter into this letter that Paul wrote two millennia ago, Lord God, would you give us wisdom? But would you, would you also give us boldness and courage to apply the things that we are about to read here? Lord Jesus, where we need to correct our heading, as individuals or as a church, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to deal with some of those uncomfortable things in our own heart which may come up? But, Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to you this morning. Would you meet with us? Would you do business with us? Open heart surgery. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning. Um, uh, You're going to need a Bible. Uh, there was probably one sitting in a pew around you somewhere. Um, I won't say snuggle up to the person next to you if they have one, because as you know, that's not safe church. Um, I had the opportunity this last week uh, to meet with a room full of about 100 other pastors who were all youth pastors, uh, because it was a, a generation... A, they don't call them youth and children's pastors and families pastors. They're all under this umbrella now of generations pastors, which sounds very snazzy. And I thought, well, cool. I can go. It's great. We do families around here. Um, and it was, it was really, really wonderful being in a room full of other people who are going, yeah, we're trying to figure this thing out. How do we do Christianity in, in the 21st century? It's really, really good. Um, we're going to try and use some technology. Uh, can I get you to put that video up? So you are here in Karang Baptist Church, and in just a moment, as it plays, we are going to zoom out of Karang because we are looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Is that playing at the moment, Colleen? Okay, can you press play for me? Awesome. So as we zoom out, I we're going to do a little bit of history this morning, a little bit of geography to help us know who it is that Paul's writing to here. So as we're zooming out, who can see their house? Yep. Getting, getting a picture of, of where we are. All right, the swamp is always bigger than we think. And as we zoom out, you see the uh, the three lakes coming into view there and then sort of shrinking, disappearing. Kangaroo Lake, Lake Cham, uh eventually Lake Boger as well. Can't see the Catalina from here. And there's Victoria and there's New South Wales, South Australia, Tasmania. You ready? And we are about to travel around the world right into the heart of the Mediterranean. And... This particular church that we're looking at this morning was one of the, the city where it was was one of the most influential, um, high trade, high traffic areas. So you can see Italy there. Uh, we'll look up. There's England, um, sort of Norway, Denmark, down into the African continent, the Sinai Peninsula, and then we're zooming in right there in the middle on that weird shaped blob with kind of the three fingers coming off the bottom of it which is called the Peloponnese, and that tiny little spit of land that connects them there, which we're going to zoom in on in just a moment, is where we will find Corinth. And uh, we have Sparta down the bottom. We've got Athens, which is its own empire. And as we zoom in, we can see that this uh, six-kilometer-wide stretch of land is an incredibly tactically important stretch of land. And the city of Corinth, we're zooming in on the modern city of Corinth, we're going to drift across to where the ancient city of Corinth is in a moment, is perfectly placed for trade. Perfectly placed. It is a city with two ports. Who here understands that if a city has a port in the ancient world, it means that it's going to be a wealthy city? Well, Corinth has two. And here is the ancient city of Corinth, uh, very early on, it had a population of about 5,000 people. Um, sorry, drifting, looking at some farmland. We can see here there's some mountainy sort of areas behind. Uh, we'll talk about them and temple worship in a moment. Uh, these, this town grew, I think at its height, it was around about 90,000 people. So I think a smidge smaller than Bendigo. All right. Welcome to Corinth. And the city of Corinth... Um, by the time we get to when Paul is writing it, has had a lot of things go wrong. Can I get you to load that PowerPoint for me now, please? So the city of Corinth was a uh, a Greek city. It was uh, a city that had a Jewish population by the time Paul comes along. It was a city that had um, a lot of temple worship. It was said... Um, there's different sort of rumors and legends about how the city of Corinth was originally founded, depending on which part of kind of Greco-Roman history you go into. But they did what we would call paganism really well. So the high point of the city, which we'll look at in a moment, this is looking through the heart of really um, the main built-up section of Corinth and up towards the hill at the back. We'll have a closer look at that in a minute. On the top of that hill, they worshipped the a sun god, Helios. They had temples to Apollos. Um, They had temples to Aphrodite, and between 700 years before the time of Christ and then 400 years before the time of Christ, they did grow from 5,000 to about 90,000 people, and because they had so much trade flowing through, culture was a real melting pot. Not only that, but with trade comes wealth, and with wealth comes massive public buildings and palaces um, and porticos, all of these sorts of things. They ended up minting their own coins. They created their own currency. They formed alliances uh, with the Athenian Empire and the Spartans. Who here has ever seen 300 Spartans? All right, there's a recent remake of that. Don't watch it. Go and watch the old one from like the 60s where the men all wear skirts. Um, not because the men wear skirts, but it's just a weird part of the film. They were one of the first... Groups, uh, one of the first nations to actually build effective warships, they had the earliest form of what we would call um, a real navy. And um, the reason that we talk about Corinthian columns is from Corinth. So these guys were called the Eye of Greece. Um, they had palaces and theatres which could hold a capacity of up to eighteen thousand people. Senate uh, uh, Roman baths they did luxury really 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 well now the problem is that with wealth comes power and with power comes luxury and with luxury comes the opportunity to basically do anything that you want so they do art and they do culture really well they do um, uh, a lot of statues even today when you go there you can visit these amazing facilities it's all good I got four of my own All good, buddy. That is the sound of a healthy church, by the way. That and the stains in the carpet and the Play-Doh that occasionally turns up in weird places. Great problem to have. It means we're doing a bunch of things right. So you guys. So we have this city of Corinth, which is powerful and influential. They are at the cutting edge of culture and philosophy. And then we find out that they have this uh, this desire to connect one side of the Isthmus of Corinth, I'm not pronouncing that properly because no one can, um, from one side to the other. So they decide that they're going to build this big canal through it. They Actually, this was finished in, I think, uh, 1896. They wanted to do it for over two and a half millennia but what they ended up doing was building a concrete plinth from one side to the other, six kilometers long. This was only finished recently. This is the scale that they wanted to do things on. They, they built this culture. They built this, um, this system of government and they were powerful and influential. And then we find, we find out that at, at one point they had a, a temple to Aphrodite that had around a thousand temple prostitutes and it was customary in the city of corinth that when you prayed publicly to the gods you would pray that they would multiply the prostitutes and if you were going to express gratitude to the gods that the gods had done something really wonderful for you you would go to the temple and take a vow that you yourself would work hard to increase the number of prostitutes it became commonplace language that to corinth to corinthize or to corinthize was basically to sell oneself if you were from Corinth, it was a byword for that whole industry. If a woman was called a Corinthian woman, it meant something that wasn't great. It meant she was considered of promiscuous reputation. It shouldn't surprise us when we get into Corinthians that we read in Paul's words that this church and this city took things to an extent, particularly entertaining people who were in sinful situations, that no other Gentile country or city ended up doing. We see this in Corinth. 146 years before the time of Jesus, Corinth is leveled population-wise. Rome comes in and destroys everything. Every male was killed, and every woman and every child was sold into slavery. And the city was basically not populated for 100 years. Julius Caesar comes along about 45 years before the time of Christ, decides that he's going to rebuild Corinth and it springs up again. And they have every expectation as a city that when the trade starts to flow back through, that now they have the protection of Rome over the top of them, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that now trade is going to boom even more. Now they're going to be even wealthier, even more secure than They were kind of at the peak of their indulgence. They have every reason to believe that. So when we think about Corinth, is there a modern city that comes to mind? Because it's helpful for us to contextualize things. See, sometimes when I'm reading through this, I actually think of Melbourne. I think of a city which is a melting pot of culture, where trade happens a lot, where people seem to have this, this vibrant culture of wanting to be at the cutting edge of fashion and technology and philosophy, where it's easy to kind of get swept up into that. And I was chatting with Anthea this morning. And we were talking maybe about Bendigo, similar size, a little bit smaller. But imagine if the gold rush in Bendigo never stopped. What would that look like? Remember, with wealth comes power, with power comes luxury, and with luxury comes indulgence. And this is the church that Paul is writing to. A city on the cutting edge of vogue, art, pleasure, the worship of self, gratification of self, and it masquerades as enlightenment, civility, and even divine engagement. So why do we find a letter to this particular group of people in our Bible? Well, it's because God likes these people. Actually, he loves these people. He would let his son die for these people. And this is kind of the the first tremendous thing that we need to take to heart about Corinth. These are messed up people. And you know what? This church that Paul is writing to has only really been there for about six years at this point when Paul writes this letter. And they are a church full of messed up people. Praise God. And Paul is writing to correct some really messed up things. But God loves these people for their brokenness, their indulgence, their obsession on a grand scale. With all of these unhealthy things, God looks past that and says, these people are worth my son's blood. And because he has shed his blood, I can forgive them and they can become my people. If you're here this morning and the culture of Corinth sounds familiar to you, if that's been your walk or your journey, if that is your journey, if that is where you're at, if, if that kind of sums up what's going on in your own heart, the Lord loves you and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He redeems us, not because we are perfect, but because he is perfect. There is hope even for Corinth. There is hope even for Coran. If God loves the people of Corinth, We need to let it sink in. God loves the people of Korang. Are we any more or any less messed up than Corinth? See a whole lot of faces going, "Mm." yeah. We are people that have stuff going on. We are among people that have stuff going on. And you know what? The Son of God can atone for people here. That is how big the love of God is. You know, God is not afraid of the dark. He wasn't afraid of the dark in Corinth. He's not afraid of the dark in Kerrang. And even in this corner of the world, overflowing with every expression of human craving and insecurity, the good news of Jesus takes root and it grows. Because even if you have all the wealth in the world and all the power in the world, even if you think you're at the cutting edge of culture, there is something about coming into contact with God which absolutely scuttles everything. There is something about finding out that the God of heaven has come looking for you, which undermines the value of everything else. And it's the same today as it was then. God cuts through all of the mess. So now that you have your Bible open to Corinthians, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Gotcha. Because this is going to give us some context about why Paul is writing to them. Acts chapter 18. And some of you will have the little snazzy heading in your Bible that says Paul in Corinth. I'm going to be reading from an ESV this morning. um, English Standard Version. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went, where? To Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul meets a refugee. Fascinating. And he went to see them, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, tent making, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Corinth has a synagogue and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, the Savior, the Rescuer was Jesus. Verse six, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles, which they had no shortage of in Corinth. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshipper of God. But he's not Jewish. Oh, sorry. Yes, sorry. Titus Justice is next guy. Isn't um, worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Some of you will have the name Sosthenes in there instead of Crispus. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. He's talking about Corinth. I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the church that Paul is writing to in Corinthians. If you uh, if you read on in chapter eighteen, you eventually find um, that things don't go so well in uh, in Corinth. Just come down to verse seventeen, uh, Acts chapter eighteen, verse seventeen. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. We find out that the ruler of the synagogue actually gets beaten up for converting to Christianity. This is important because. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians. When Paul starts writing, Paul is about to hit the Corinthian church with some pretty hard stuff, and he addresses the letter to them from himself and from Sosthenes, this guy who got beaten up. When Paul introduces himself in the letter to this church, he introduces himself as someone who had already lived with them for 18 months, as someone who had seen all the different stuff that they went through, someone who had been there when the beatings took place, and Paul actually... Uh, pulls rank we see in the letter to philippians that paul introduces himself really pastorally he doesn't give his qualifications here in corinthians he does let's read together the first couple of verses paul called by the will of god to be an apostle of christ jesus and our brother Sosthenes. that's who's writing paul is pulling rank he's making it very clear that the things he's about to say he has the authority to say Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, which literally means set apart, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, which in the original language is the same terminology. So they are set apart. They are called to be set apart, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, In other words, this is not just a letter to Corinth. This is a letter to go out to the different cities that Corinth had helped to found. This is a letter to go beyond the specific circumstances of Corinth. And Paul says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have already hopefully snuck in a reading of Corinthians and we know that they're in for a whooping. They are about to have uh, some severe talking to from their apostle, their their traveling missionary pastor, is about to serve it up, and here is how he starts. Grace and peace to you. Paul does not intend for them to be crushed by God. Grace and peace. Everything he is about to write to them is to build them up. This church, when they received this letter, it would not have had chapter and verse distinctions. They would have read it in one sitting. I encourage you to try and do that this week. might take you about an hour. Just sit and read through. Why is it a good thing that Paul is about to kind of serve up some instruction to this church? Why are we reading this? We're perfect. Come on. That was a joke. Why is it so important to Paul? He knew these people were messed up. He knew things would go wrong in the church. Why is he bothering to correct them at all? You remember when Paul was called? You know the story that he's a violent young man. He's on the way to Damascus. He's got letters to go into the synagogues and fish the Christians out. He's locking them up. He's taking them away from their families. He's shutting their businesses down. He's seizing their property. And the Lord knocks him to the ground. And what does Jesus ask him? Jesus says, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul at the time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he he calls out in response. You remember what he says? He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord Jesus answers him and says, I am the one you are persecuting. We need to get this into our thinking. It's going to flavor everything we're about to read, that for the Apostle Paul to attack the church is to attack the very hands and feet and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul calls the church the body of Christ. Because to attack the church is to attack Christ. It also means that if there is a church which is perfectly fine having really messed up things go on, it means that that church is basically welcoming sickness and infection and a whole lot of unrighteous things into the very body of Christ. Can you see this is a high status thing for Paul? These people would have had a choice, and it's the same choice that we have today. What do we do with Paul's words? How prepared are we to receive instruction from him? See, he writes about unity in Christ. He makes it clear that the things he is about to cover are going to affect everyone, those who are sanctified, those who are called to be sanctified, and all those everywhere who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the things we're going to read from Paul are specific to the Corinthian context, but they still reveal the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They still tell us what the Lord loves and what the Lord hates, what is pleasing to him and what is despising. And we need to take those things on board. We can't just sort of cut and paste it out of the scriptures and say, oh, that was just for Corinth. It doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. We don't have the option of saying, Paul's not writing to me. He's made it pretty clear he is. So we have a decision. Are we ready? Are we committed? Are we prepared to assess ourselves and be transformed? As much as Corinth and this tiny little six-year-old fledgling church was looking out at that city and going, we're supposed to be a lighthouse into the soup of Corinth. Are we prepared... Maybe to change gear on the way that we are a lighthouse into the soup of Kerrang Ganawara, Victoria. Are we ready for church to change? For Corinth, it was not going to be that everyone simply did their own thing and got what they wanted anymore. They had to have a long, hard look at what sin they were tolerating in their own life and in the life of the church. They had to have a look at what pieces of culture they had absorbed and not questioned, the things that were just blending comfortably in. For Corinth, it is about to be a very, very, very bumpy ride. Praise God. Yes. Woohoo. Amen. To smuggle some Pentecostals in. Good. So let me read to you again Paul's words. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are prepared to commit as we study this book of the Bible, as we submit ourselves to the teaching of St. Paul to being confronted, to allowing the Lord to come in and do open-heart surgery, not just in you as an individual, but in us as a community of faith, then I encourage you to sit and to put an hour aside this week and read through this. And let's all be on the same page. Let's submit ourselves to the teaching of Paul, the leading and guiding and wisdom of the Spirit of God, because you know what? What else are we going to do? I don't want to do a Corinth. <laughs> well, before Paul writes them, have a read through. It'll make sense. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that if we really don't want to change, no one can make us, that we can be forced into compliance and We can be coerced into maybe changing the way things look on the outside, but we know in our heart of hearts that if we don't want to do something, no one can actually touch what we want. So, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would convict us of what we actually want. Would you please bring it to our attention? Would you help us to be honest with ourselves and with you about what is going on in our heart? about whether we want correction, whether we want transformation, whether we want to be healed and released, whether we want to forgive, whether we want to part with some things that we have made welcome in our lives. Lord Jesus, would you help us? We pray for conviction. You promised that the Spirit would convict of sin and righteousness. We ask for that right now. Lord Jesus, would you sit with us this week? Would you visit us as we wake up and as we fall asleep? Would you help us to be your people? As we asked before, would you help us to be transformed? We do not want to misrepresent you. Lord Jesus, be with us. In your precious name, we ask all these things. Amen.